Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 252, and today's guest is Gary Beasley, CEO and co-founder of Roofstock. Real estate is the largest asset class in the world, so it's surprising that this industry has been slow to change, but this is not the case anymore. The prop tech industry is on fire. According to the Wall Street Journal, last year over $9.5 billion was invested into the prop tech industry from VCs and other investors. So it's proof that there is a tremendous amount of disruption happening within the sector through the use of technology to solve an incredible amount of business challenges and improving operational efficiencies. After building a very successful career in the real estate and tech industry, Gary saw an opportunity to build on his knowledge to launch Roofstock, the leading end-to-end online platform for single-family rental investing. Its marketplace makes the process of investing in single-family properties accessible, cost-effective, and just simple. The company just announced a $240 million Series E round of funding at a $1.94 billion valuation. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like a discussion about the prop tech market and what's going on within this industry, a walk through Gary's background and all the great companies that he's been involved in throughout his career, all the details on roof stock in terms of how the marketplace works and growth plans ahead for the company, three real estate markets that Gary is very bullish on, his point of view on the current state of the real estate market and how economic factors play into the overall puzzle, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, is your company hiring? If the answer is yes, then you might want to add a VentureFizz subscription. It is our employment branding and hiring solution that helps to keep your company top of mind for our targeted audience of professionals in the tech industry. A VentureFizz subscription includes an employment branding page, unlimited postings to our job board, access to our exclusive content series, and so much more. Send an email to info at VentureFizz.com for all the details. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Gary. Gary, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here, Keith. I am excited to talk to you, Gary, because, uh, well, for a number of reasons, uh, you know, you've been deeply involved in the world of real estate on a number of companies that we're going to talk about. Um, but it's also kind of like a, a personal reason, too. My, my dad was deeply involved in real estate. He was a landlord. He owned apartments. So he just was in that world. And I was my summer job every year was to paint his apartments and mow the lawns of the apartments. So anyways, uh, what you're doing is very different than that, but it just is still kind of the world that I grew up in. But when I look at the tech industry, the prop tech industry is absolutely exploding. There's so many great companies. There's a lot of funding um, and it's just as interesting. And I wanted to get your take on why is you know, the fin, the, I mean, when I look at industries like fintech, there was nothing going on in fintech for a long time. And then all of a sudden there was an explosion in that industry, but now prop tech is like having its moment. So I just want to get your take on why is prop tech finally seeing all this explosive amount of innovation as well as investment capital? Well, I, I think a number of reasons. Um, one, one, you see uh, real estate is the largest asset class really in the world, depending on how you define it. If you look at residential real estate alone, it's about a $35 trillion space, just the housing market. And then you start to layer in commercial and all the other things. So really big market opportunity. The industry in the past has been pretty slow to embrace technology and change. There's the constant innovators dilemma there. So, you know, things tend to work pretty well for the incumbent players. So why change? And then also the emergence of a number of technologies have made prop tech, I think, 
habits moment today. So I would say if you go back 10 years ago, when my partners and I were building Waypoint Homes, there was a couple of reasons the single family rental space became start to become a thing for institutional investors. And one was the, the financial crisis, the last one, Great Recession, where home prices dropped 65% in a lot of markets and you know 35% nationally created an entry point. But the second was the emergence of cloud and mobile computing. So which allowed us to build applications where people could go around and do an inspection of a house on an iPad. It all gets uploaded to the cloud. We can automate a bunch of business processes, do automated bids, valuations. So everything that we were able to apply technologies that allowed us to underwrite, acquire, and manage a distributed portfolio of homes at scale, ultimately about as efficiently as apartments, which nobody believed could happen. But the technology allowed that to happen. And so now you look back and it seems obvious, but I think it's like these emergence of a lot of technologies, like for us, it was this, a lot of the cloud and mobile stuff. Then you've got the internet of things and all the things that are happening too. Um, so I, I, and I think once institutional capital or venture capital finds a sector and starts to embrace it, it's like toothpaste. It doesn't go back in the tube and it tends to expand. And I think, um, given the size of the market and the um, the real improvements that technology could could provide across these sectors it's it's not surprising that it's been really an explosion yeah and it's so cool to see the level of innovation and technology propelling this innovation especially with a company that we're going to talk about roofstock so that's you know there's so many great ideas and it's leveling the playing ground for people to participate, you know, regardless of, you know, what their income level is or, or situation. So well, let's rewind the clock. So uh, your background, where'd you grow up and what were you like as a child? Yeah. So I grew up in a small town in Northwest Indiana um, and uh, sort of like you, Keith, uh, it was in a real estate family. My dad has owned a real estate firm. It was a commercial brokerage and, and um, uh, development firm called Beasley Realty, uh, ironically. And so, um, you know, so I grew up in, in that environment, um, you know, ironically, yesterday, February 22nd was my dad's 100th birthday, had he still been alive. Unfortunately, he, he passed away in 1995, but he was born 2-22-22, an amazing birthday. And so uh, it's, you know, what I was thinking about, um, actually, as I was kind of driving down, I, I did a class at Stanford yesterday to talk about real estate innovation. And I was just thinking how cool it would be for my dad to see what's happened in real estate um, since he was around, because he, you know, he didn't even have a cell phone and he was you know, doing his business. And here I am going to talk to undergrads and grad students about the internet and all these innovations in real estate and how technology is sort of transforming the way it's done. So um, I just thought that was that was a you know pretty cool and, and ironic thing on on his birthday. Yeah, you know, just you know thinking about my own career. I, so technically, I started out in real estate too. So I was doing um, real estate tax work for like a, a tax abatement work for like I would appraise real estate. So it was mainly commercial real estate, and then you know debate with the local authorities on the assessment and the tax rate to hopefully reduce the tax bill. So I worked for KPMG and used to work with a lot of real estate investment trusts and large commercial properties. So I actually started out kind of like an appraiser. And I just think of uh, how much easier it would be due to do, do that job with technology now. 
but you know, so what were some of the first, you know, you know, you, you already highlighted that you went to business school at Stanford. So coming out of B school, like, like how did your career start to take shape from there? Yeah, it was interesting. In fact, it's funny because I was telling the story last night to a lot of the students. They're saying, well, how did you get, how'd you decide when you got out of business school, what to do? And I ended up taking a job with a company called Security Capital Group. And it was to carry the briefcase of the founder, who this guy, Bill Sanders, who's kind of a legend in the REIT world. And he had founded LaSalle Partners back in the day, sold his interest to another firm, went to Santa Fe to retire, but couldn't retire, started a real estate private equity firm. He started uh, investing in REITs and forming REITs and taking them public. And he wanted an MBA type to come help him in the early days. And so I made a decision to go work for him um, and basically with an ill-defined job, knowing that I would be close to the sun and I would learn. And it was literally less than half of the salary of the investment banking and consulting jobs I was looking at. Mm -hmm. And I made the decision coming out of business school, I wanted to do my first job or two for the experience, not for the money, um, because that was some advice that I'd gotten um, earlier in my life, which turned out to be prescient advice. And so I did that and moved to Santa Fe, um, learned a ton, ended up uh, getting recruited to go then um, do a, another uh, role in the resort industry uh, where I was using a lot of the skills that I had developed to underwrite and acquire uh, resorts around the country. So um, that was with a company called KSL. It's now called KSL Capital. It was KSL um, Resorts back then. And, and that was very cool because I could combine my vocation with my avocation. I really enjoyed golf and I kind of understood it. And this was a chance to think about it golf and hotels and spas and, th- and clubs as a business. And there's a big real estate develop- redevelopment opportunity there. Kind of some of the early assets acquired by my old company were out of the RTC crisis kind of in the early nineties. And so we had a really low basis and we figured out how to create value on these large campuses. And what I like about real estate, especially hospitality is they're operating businesses disguised as real estate. Right there, when you think about a hotel or a club or things like that, restaurants, there's a real estate component, but a real operating component. And so that's always drawn me to operationally intensive real estate where you could add value, not just through the physical plant, but the, the hardware, but also the software component, mm-hmm. which is the service levels and the experience of, of people. And so, so then I spent about, about six years at KSL, um, decided uh, my wife and I had just had twins at the time. We said, we really want to move to the Bay Area. I talked to uh, Mike Shannon, who was running KSL, said, hey, can I move to the Bay Area? And this was back when you couldn't live anywhere and do your job. He said, no, you got to be here. You're running the acquisitions team. You got you know, you to be here. So I said, well, I, we really need to move, move to the Bay Area because we have family here. So I took a flyer to, to be CFO of this company called Zip Realty, which was a fledgling online residential brokerage, a bit like Redfin is today. And... Um, so I dove in as CFO there. We kind of did some some work there, fixed the business model, raised two rounds of venture capital, and then took it public in 2004. So that was a life experience of never having been a CFO before, sort of figuring it out, and then getting to take a company through an IPO, which was a great life experience. And I stayed there for about uh, about five years in, in that role. And then, uh, yeah. Well, the time with when Zip Realty. So, what was the landscape then of people selling and buying homes on you know through an online marketplace? You know, because uh, 
know, this is 2003-ish. Yeah, yeah, early 2000s. Basically, no one was buying or selling anything online yet. It was, our model was to empower our own uh, agents with a platform to, we provided them with leads and and a, and a platform to incubate the leads and then close the transactions. And so it was really an, an, an enablement tool for a transaction that was still relatively traditional. Um, but, but we were kind of at the front end of putting uh, complete MLS listings online back before Zip Realty really, uh, I think we were the first to com- put, put complete MLS online. So there was uh, there were subsets of MLS listings online, but we created what was called a virtual office website where you could sign up and see all the listings. And it was somewhat controversial at the time, uh, but but the DOJ was supportive of what we were doing and, you know, kind of, um, and now it kind of opened the, the doors for information to start flowing. Um, and once the information was out there, um, that was, I think, Kind of real estate 1.0, I like to think was it was about con- content, you know, getting real content out there. And then places like Zillow and Trulia before it became part of Zillow, really good at kind of getting all that content out there, valuations, um, all that. And then I think real estate 2.0, which is where we are now with Roofstock, is more about commerce, right? So it's about actually transacting online. Um, places like Zillow are great to go get information, but then you just get connected with an agent. Um, who can then help you in a more traditional way. Um, What we're trying to do is have a complete platform where you can live anywhere really in the world and be able to buy properties through our platform site unseen with a, you know, in an elegant way, which really kind of unlocks a lot of opportunity for people um, where you can use technology and different business processes to, to really enable that to happen, to break down those geographic barriers to, to real estate investing. And that was kind of the vision of, of Roofstock is, you know, how do we sell, how do we enable houses to be sold um, with tenants in them, really with, without having to vacate the tenant and, and list it through a traditional process? Why couldn't we kind of certify the home, certify local property managers, certify the tenant, and then have someone come in, evaluate all those aspects and be able to bid on it and buy it and then have, you know, it managed for them. So that was kind of the same idea. Yeah. I mean, well, you obviously had a tremendous amount of experience in the real estate industry. And then there was also, I think you may have mentioned this you know, earlier, but, you know, Waypoint was another step in your career where, yep. you know, you were actively involved and, you know, working in, you know, this whole space of single family retail properties, or I'm sorry, single family rental properties. So, was it that experience that kind of really opened your eyes to wait, this is an opportunity to really do something different in this space? It was. So uh, at the time I, um, so rewind back to sort of 2009, 2010, I I was um, actually working for uh, a family office, John Pritzker's family office, investing in hospitality assets. And I was running Joie de Vivre Hotels, which is a boutique hotel company. We ended up uh, merging that company with another. And so I left the CEO role, was back at the fund with John, looking at investment opportunities. And we tried to convince him actually to uh, invest in single family homes as a um, investable asset class, because I was doing it on the side with my friends, Doug and Colin, who were the 
original founders of Waypoint, Doug Bryan, Colin Wheel. And John didn't want to do it. He said, it looks like a great opportunity, but it's really not my thing. I really want to do hotels right now in my career. So I decided to make the leap and said, I, I think this is a real, uh, you know, an opportunity, an amazing entry point to come in and do a lot of good by bringing a lot of capital to bear. Because if you remember back then in kind of 2009, 10, 11, the housing market was cratering. Uh, there were no buyers for all these foreclosed homes and nobody would finance them. So uh, the homes needed work. And so what we raised, I think the first institutional capital of scale in the space, we raised 200 million from GI partners and start buying homes. And we knew they were good investments. We didn't know for sure yet whether we could build a platform around managing these things at scale. We thought we could, but we knew worst case, we were buying homes that were $400,000 in the East Bay of the San Francisco area here, the Bay Area, that for $125,000, renovating them for 25. So we're in them for 150. We knew that that was a good trade, even though we couldn't get debt um, at the time, <laughs> which is kind of crazy. Crazy to think that now. <laughs> well, and the, the lenders who were lending 97% when the home was 400,000 wouldn't lend us 50, 50% on a home that was now $150,000 without it being recourse. So right. that, yeah. that ended up changing relatively quickly. But, but I, one of the things that we knew was there was real optionality. If this worked, we could maybe build a platform and it ended up working. We ended up kind of building some cool tech. We figured out the management side. Um, and, in, and so we scaled that business, ended up partnering with Starwood Capital and took the company public in 2014 as a REIT. And uh, so I was co-CEO of that business with Doug and we took that public and I ran that for about a year and a half before really deciding, wow, this is, I could continue to stay at the REIT and, and, and grow, grow the REIT. But what I realized personally was what I really liked doing was innovating. And we had spent several years kind of innovating the Waypoint model and, and, and there was this event Wow, amazing. Took the company public. Now we needed somebody who could sort of just steer the ship there. And I wanted to take a take a you know kind of swing for the fences and, and see if I could start something from scratch, which I had never done. I joined a couple of companies early, Zip Realty was early, Waypoint Homes was early. And so um, really with my co-founders, um, Gregor Watson and Rich Ford, um, sort of came up with a business plan for for um, Roofstock and sort of dove in in May of, of um, 2015, knowing that um, we had a pretty good idea and felt pretty confident we could raise the capital. We actually raised um, money pretty quickly from Coastal Ventures and we were off to the races and, and started building a team and took us about six months to build the initial product which was a you know online marketplace for homes for both retail and institutional investors and and um, the big bet was gosh would anybody buy a hundred and fifty or two hundred thousand dollar item online sight unseen in a marketplace no one had done that before we thought it would we knew um, if we you know could could present it well build enough trust in the platform that from an investment standpoint, it was something that people had been doing for generations, just in an old school way. And so that was, that was sort of the, the challenge and opportunity. And, um, you know, fortunately it, you know, it worked. 
Yeah, because correct me if I'm wrong here. So if uh, the traditional way at that point in time would be for me as a potential, you know, interested party that wants to invest in single family homes, that would be rental properties for me. I would have to scour my local area, contact the realtor, probably hopefully find something that I, you know, works for me in terms of the numbers, you know, close on it, hoping that I get a renter to rent it and then manage it moving forward. You disrupted all that. (laughs) Like, so I would just go online and create a profile look at the properties, look at the numbers because they're already listed there and knowing that this is already occupied. And like you guys do some of the due diligence too, right? As far as the property, making sure that, you know, the inspection and things like that are all, are all set, right? Yeah. So you described, you described it beautifully. Um, The old school way really forced people to buy homes where they lived. And if you look historically, 70 to 80% of all rental homes or owned within about an hour's drive of the owner. Um, and so, you know, if you think about it from a diversification, it, it's great from a practical standpoint, but not everybody lives where they should own rental properties. And, and then you're overly indexed on where you live, where your job, your primary residence, and your rental properties all are subject to the same kind of economic cycle. So from a diversification standpoint, you know, you'd never buy, if you live in Atlanta, you'd never just buy companies that are headquartered in Atlanta, right? You're buying. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of silly. So, uh, so what we, did, what we kind of put our thinking caps on and said, okay, what do we need to solve for people to feel comfortable buying remotely? And we need to know, you needed to know the condition of the property. You needed to know, you know, what's kind of the status with the tenancy and you need to understand the neighborhoods and, and, you know, from a risk return standpoint, and you needed to know that there was good local property management that you could lean on to manage it for you. And so, um, and you need to build trust. And, and so one of the things that we did was, you know, had all the properties inspected, posted the inspection reports, you know, did a review of the of the tenant payment history and rent ledger. We certified local property managers and made sure they were good. Um, found lo- found lenders who could provide financing and and did it so you could you could kind of put in your search parameters as you said, Keith, and and you would be seeing things in your feed that might be in Orlando, Florida, Phoenix, Atlanta, Birmingham, Dallas. When it, you could be geographically agnostic to some degree but you're looking for say homes of a certain vintage with certain types of schools and certain growth characteristics and a certain sort of yield profile. Wow. Wow. Pittsburgh. I never thought about buying a home in Pittsburgh, but you know, this is kind of cool. And so that was the big sort of unlock for people. And on the trust side, um, one of the things we instituted early on was, um, and it was, it was a 30 day money back guarantee. So what we realized was that, that, people were much more inclined to say, buy that airline ticket that's returnable in 24 hours or the cancelable hotel, even though it's rare that you actually do do that, but you know, you can. And so what we said is, what if we tried this kind of seems crazy, but said, if for any reason uh, you don't like the home, you could basically put it back to us in 30 days, we will resell it for free. And if we have to sell it for less, we'll cover the difference. Very rarely has that happened over the course of the the history of the company, but it's a powerful promise, and it's still out there. Um, and um, it, you know, so so that was for us a, a great way. It was a lesson that I, when one of our early investors is Mark Benioff, who's the founder of 
Salesforce. And he, he talked um, to us very early about the importance of, says there are really kind of three things that you need to prioritize when you're doing a startup, especially marketplace, trust, revenue, and profitability. And they should be in that order. So the early days, it should be all about trust. Don't worry about the revenues. Don't worry about making money. As you, Because if, if you don't build the trust, the revenues and the profits aren't going to come. And, and then worry about building that revenue before you're overly focused on profits. And then ultimately, obviously, you have to make money. And that was just a good lens. And as we were making decisions early on, things like the, the, the guarantee, when we, we saw once we instituted that, the, the, the sales started you know, growing much more rapidly just because people are like, okay, these guys are standing behind what they're, what they're putting on their site. Well, I was going to ask you, like, so like building a marketplace, it's always such the chicken and egg scenario of like, okay, how do you even get momentum of either side going? And then once you get one side going, so it's usually the supply side you need for, you know, because if they show, if the demand side shows up and there's nothing there, they're just going to be like, well, this is a waste of my time. So like, how do you, like you built trust, but how'd you even get momentum? Yeah. So uh, one of the things that, that gave me comfort to start the business is I felt fairly confident that I could get some supply to start it because I knew all the CEOs of the, of the REITs and the large funds just because they were my peers. And I called them all up and I said, hey, man, uh, I need 20 homes to sell. Um, you know, we'll do it at a really good price for you, but we've, we're, I'm starting this thing. And if this works, it's going to be a super efficient way for you to sell at a low cost without having to vacate your homes. Because I know you want to turn parts of your portfolio and eventually exit markets and get liquidity, things like that. Because the alternative was to sell through the MLS and it costs 10 to 12% between the commissions and then the lost rent and the CapEx to put on the MLS. I said, I'll sell it for two and a half and I'll pay for all the marketing expenses. They all gave us some inventory. So I knew we'd have some initial supply. Then it was about how do we package it up, productize it? And I also knew that investors, if it was properly kind of merchandised, would love to buy a home that was already cash flowing because you avoid that drag period. You don't have to buy a home and then renovate it and find a tenant and a property manager and travel all over the place. So it felt like there was a good value proposition for both sides of the marketplace. So we started with supply, we, we got the demand engine going, but, but as you describe, we like to describe, it's almost like you're building scaffolding up one side of a building, you kind of get to the top, you're like, oh, I got to sort of go up to the other side. And these marketplaces are really, really hard to start. Um, but once you get them going, they're almost, hard, they're almost impossible to kill, right? Because you start to create these network effects. And that's why I think some of the most valuable companies in the world are marketplaces because of that. But you don't hear about the, the vast majority of them that just never get to scale and never get to escape velocity because they are really hard. Yeah. Uh, so this morning, heading into uh, the office, I was, you know, I've been listening to a lot of audiobooks and I was listening to the Everything Store and Amazon. And I'm at, I think it's chapter three, but they talk about eBay was just starting and Amazon wanted to crush eBay, but they failed because the network effects, because they had a jump start on a marketplace. And so it was just interesting to hear how even Amazon couldn't take down eBay in its early days due to those network effects and, and how powerful they are. Now, one of the things that you do, I'm just going to like, again, focus. So, you know, as a consumer, which I think this is a brilliant idea. And, you know, I talked about my history of being, you know, growing up in a home with real estate and apartments, yet I wouldn't want to pursue the path of what my dad did because 
I would be worried about uh, tenant turnover, um, you know, the, uh, the property management side, like, you know, he was very handy. He could, you know, and he had a little crew that would go and fix stuff, but that's the last thing I would ever want to do. Cause I had knew nothing about the, uh, fixing things, but when you solve those problems for consumers where it's like, no, there's already a tenant, there is a management company in place to handle things. If there's a problem with that home. So I think that's also the key. In addition to that guarantee, it's like those problems that, you know, that a potential investor would not want to handle are already addressed up front. Yeah, that, that's that's right. And um, in fact, we've even taken it one step further because um, one of the things, one of the new products we launched the last uh, winter in, in November, December was Roofstock One. And that is an ability, if you wanted to be totally passive, um, you can go in and buy shares of homes that are already in a REIT structure um, but which the, the, you know, it's a unique innovation in REITs where you could come in and buy specific shares of homes within an overall REIT structure. So let's say you wanted to buy, you know, build to rent homes. So it could be a thematic or a geographic bundle of shares. It could be tech growth cities, or I want to buy homes in Atlanta or Birmingham, or I just want, you know, new homes. I want high yield homes in the Midwest. And so what we've done is said, if you, Keith, want it's as opposed to taking that 30 or forty thousand dollars you're going to use as a down payment on a hundred and fifty thousand dollar home you could buy shares in roofstock one of the types of properties and the types of markets you like and it's all fully managed by us for you and so you get diversification for less money and you don't have any other responsibilities of ownership so i think our our current marketplace is somewhere in between it's a lot easier than the old school way, but you're still a landlord. You still have a property manager and you have decisions to make. You have to get a loan. Um, but a lot of people like having title and kind of building a portfolio of actual real estate they own. But even more people, we believe, like the economic exposure of those rental homes, but don't have the time or inclination to actually want to worry about any of the aspects of ownership. And that's you know, and that, that again was just sort of listening to our customers. And we had an offsite at my house a couple of years ago to try to solve the, the feedback we were getting from people who weren't pulling the trigger. Cause I just, you know, called up about 20 of people who had been on our site a lot and not bought anything. And I was hearing about a lot of the same things. I don't want to have to get a loan. I, I don't want to ever have to do, deal with tenant issues. Paradox of choice. You keep putting new homes up there every day. I can't figure out which single home to buy. I've got enough money to buy one home. So these were the challenges, and we just put our heads together. And what we realized was the the probably best and only way to do this was we needed to step into the middle of the transaction, package the home up with financing and property management, and essentially sell off the equity in the form of shares to people. And that's what we've done. And so we, we did a beta of this uh, a couple of years ago in a different structure. We learned from that and now we've launched it in this REIT construct that I think is the right structure uh, to scale. And this year we're gonna be leaning in and really growing that. And that's our individual investor product right now, just for accredited investors. Um, so it's it, you have to have you know a couple hundred thousand of annual income or a million dollar net worth generally to qualify. So it's, it doesn't get us exactly where we want to be to really democratize access to it, but we're working on a you know, version of that that would be available for anybody. But, but for now, anybody who does qualify, and a lot of the people who are buying homes on our site do qualify, they're starting to look at Roofstock One as an alternative. 
I know this isn't an apples to apples comparison, but it just reminds you of what AngelList did as far as opening the doors mm-hmm. to angel investing, where, I mean, before it was like, it was just, if, unless you were Ron Conway, who I know is another investor in your company, it's like, he has plenty of deal flow, but uh, Keith, who's in the Philadelphia area has zero DR flow, but might want to write super small checks and participate in companies that could eventually become something like AngelList just made such a gravity shift of what it took to become an angel investor. So to do this for the real estate market is uh, super exciting too. Total game changer. Love AngelList. Um, in fact, part of the inspiration and the structure of Roofstock One is we actually have an element of that. So you could have um, investors um, either contribute platforms or buy a portfolio of homes through Roofstock One and allow people to co-invest with them. So one of the one of the things, like let's say Keith, you wanted to put together a five million dollar syndicate of homes on Roofstock One and open it up to other investors who want to co-invest with you. The structure is set up. That's so, cool. So it's very much like a, a page out of AngelList. Um, and we've, we've actually talked with some um, you know, NBA players and, and some entertainers who are interested in potentially um, setting up sleeves of, of homes so they could get exposure. And it might be kind of cool to open it up for uh, retail investors to then co-invest in those same homes with them. So that's oh, one of the things we're working on. That's super game changing. Like the syndicates, because that's exactly what changed everything for Angelus for me was the syndicates. And if you start to get, you know, some type of celebrities, athletes that start to build these and then people can follow and and like, it's just, it's been amazing to see how celebrities have been, you know, whether it's actors, athletes have been getting super involved in startups and all this, you know, wave of transformation, which is super, super cool too. So what's the current- stage of of the company like where's roofstock now with um you know where are you around as far as um you know round of investments number of employees growth plans ahead yeah so uh we've got um over 500 people now so we're, in fact uh we're we hired over 50 people in january alone so we're and we're looking at wow. <laughs> our, our, our plan is to double uh, our headcount this year um but the business is growing quickly. There's a lot of opportunity kind of across the board. So, so we are hiring lots and lots of people um, um, across and really across the country. Uh, we, it used to be we were just hiring in the Bay Area or in Dallas. Um, we now have a New York office through our um, acquisition of Great Jones, the property manager. But we're hiring people everywhere and li- literally all over the world, and which COVID has changed. Right, a couple of years ago we weren't doing that, but now to be competitive, we we have to do it. Um, uh, we we were you know um, we were in the process of, of of finalizing another round of financing, which you know hopefully we'll be announcing in the relatively near future, um, which will set us up um, to um, for real growth um, from from where we are today. Um, but yeah, I think we're you know con- continuing to to invest in our existing product lines and test. New, we're always testing new things as well, listening to our customers, and ultimately we we believe um, we should be a global company. And so one of the things we'll do this year is start to think about are there ways to export some of what we're doing to to some other parts of the world, and also there's some adjacent product types that we think are quite interesting. We we just launched a short-term rental marketplace on Roofstock. So you could come and find uh, 
homes that are um, you, you 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 could utilize, uh, but also you know have it managed and rented out on a short term basis for you. Um, and so that's we think an interesting growth area. It's exploded during COVID, as everybody knows, who's tried to get away for a few weeks. Um, the, the occupancies of these short term rentals are through the roof, and there's actually a lot of yield in a lot in, in them that didn't exist before because the utilization is high, and that allows us to go after a whole nother segment of more expensive properties in sort of resort and urban areas that aren't traditional candidates for our long-term rental marketplace. And so now that we've got the marketplace built and lots and lots of eyeballs coming, we could start to expand it to some of these adjacent markets. We want to stick to um, you know, residential properties that have an investment component to them, but that could be you know, short-term rentals as well as long-term rentals. It could even be, say, small apartments that are below the institutional radar that looks a lot like single-family rentals did a decade ago before they started to become professionally managed and attracting institutional capital. And some of the technology that we've built for the for the single-family home market could be repurposed and applied to you know some of these other segments. Um. And maybe this is related to what you were talking about, but what about like fractional shares and like vacation homes and, and, you know, like Vail or something like that, where it's like, you can't touch owning a property out there, but a fractional share would be something that, you know, people could potentially afford. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so we're looking at that. There are companies out there like Picasso that are Mm -hmm. doing that with um, resort properties and an LLC structure. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of opportunity. I think this whole idea of fractionalization um, and now with blockchain, um, the technology and, and the ability to tokenize, um, there's an awful lot happening there. And we've got a whole task force working on kind of the next iteration of what our marketplace might look like. Um, so more to come there, but we do feel like there, I, I, I used to say that I think in real estate, a lot of times, Blockchain was a solution in search of a problem. Mm-hmm. And now I, I think the, the problem is it's really hard to trade real estate. There's a ton of friction. There's not a lot of transparency, a lot of fees, takes a lot of time, you know, all, all those things. Um, the, there are some real applications to using blockchain and tokenization to bring a lot of transparency and efficiency, we believe, to real estate trades. And so... Uh, you know, stay tuned, but, but we've got some things in the works that I think should be, that we're going to test this year that should be kind of interesting. All right. So need to get your take on some things, real estate market. What are three markets that you're bullish on that may be flying under the radar? Oh, let's see. Well, um, you know, I guess I'd have to say, um, you know, one of the markets we get so much interest in is Austin. Um, there's just a lot going on there. There's a lot to like about Austin. Um, I wouldn't say it's necessarily under the radar uh, because people have discovered Austin, but there's so much growth there. Um, so the yields are low, but but I think there's um, you know there's a lot to like about Texas. I think from a from a you know place to do business standpoint, and Austin uh, has the best music. So I you know in in, in the state and best food. So that I, I like I like Austin. Um, I'm I'm a fan of. Um, like, you know, Nashville is also a very interesting market. A lot of interest there, a lot of things to like about that market from an employment standpoint and a lifestyle standpoint. 
Um, so that's really good. And then, then, you know, some of the, there's some interesting markets out there like Birmingham, Alabama, that, you know, might be off the radar and yeah, we encourage people to sort of poke around on our site. There's some of these markets uh, that we're doing some research on also in, in Roofstock one, one of our strategies is to try to uncover some of these, um, secondary and tertiary markets where there might still be a little bit more opportunity where we really like the growth profile. So, um, and we're, we're going to be adding new markets you know, over the course of this year. So that would be a good place for people, even if they're not going to buy um, shares, um, they'll get some insights into some of the markets that we think might be kind of interesting over the upcoming years. So playing the contrarian, um, what's your point of view on things like I saw the uh, CEO of Redfin uh, on uh, either CNBC or one of the outlets recently talking about inventory is still a major issue, right? So it's just, there's not enough inventory to supply their growth demands of what they could be handling as a business, or there could be uh, potential investors that would like to do what we're talking about, but it's like, oh, you know, the stock market is going through a slight correction. Now there's inflation, there's rising interest rates, mortgage rates are increasing. So like, how do you like address things that may be in the back of a consumer's head, you know, if they're considering roof stock? Yeah, uh, we could take a couple of hours and kind of die, you know, break that question apart. But at a, at a very high level, I would say um, interest rates is a really interesting question because interest rates are clearly going up. What I tend to do when there's things like that happen, say, OK, well, why is that happening? Why are interest rates going up? And interest rates are going up because the economy's smoking hot. Right. There's a lot. You know, so we need to slow it down. Um, there's inflation. We're trying to kind of bring inflation under control. Um, there's a lack of supply in housing that's you know, kind of driving up the costs of, of housing. All these things are happening that are inflationary. So, yes, interest rates going up make it you can afford less house. But the reason it's going up fundamentally, I, I would say, could be beneficial to real estate, which has historically been a very good inflation hedge. So would you like to be in bonds, for example, where you've got a fixed coupon that, does, that where that price um, goes the other way when rates go up? Um, it, or would you rather be in housing where you could raise rents in line with inflation? Um, so I like to think of, of single family rental homes a bit like uh, an inflation index bond with an equity kicker, right? Every year you can, you could keep you could raise your rents if there's inflation or increase in your costs. And you, your equity kicker is, is your equity, your levered equity, because you typically have a loan against it. And if the home price goes up um, three, four, five percent a year and you're levered three to one or four to one, your equity can grow really dramatically. Um, so even if prices don't go up 15 or percent a year, which they did over the last year, 15 to 18 percent, which is crazy, they can't. Rising interest rates should bring down that rate of price growth to single digits. And you know, it should be mid single digits, not 10 or 15%. That's not su sustainable. So I think the interest rates going up will rationalize the rate of growth of home prices, but I still think they're gonna grow because the supply demand dynamic. The, the other thing that's happening is the supply chain. It's, it's, very, it's expensive to build houses, which is another thing that I think supports the value of those homes. It's a lot harder to build homes than apartments. 
where you can go vertical with apartments. Homes take a lot of land. You can't build as many of them. And with people wanting to work from home and an ability to work from home, perhaps indefinitely, people want more space. It also creates an opportunity in a lot of these secondary and tertiary markets for new supply to be built. So I think the build to rent movement is here to stay. Um, there's there's going to be a lot more of that. And um, yeah, I mean, it's I don't have a crystal ball, so it's it's impossible to say how this all plays out. But in rates going up, you know, this year at a modest pace, you know, four or five rate increases, which is what I think everyone's expecting, I think is sort of priced into the market. And I, I think we'll be okay. But I do agree with Glenn um, uh, Kelman from, from Redfin, supply is a problem, right? And, and it's, there, it, there's a shortage of homes. We need more homes. Um, one of the things that we try to do is um, go out to owners of rental homes that have them that are off the market and encourage them Hey, if you'd like to sell them with tenants in place, we could help you do that. So we're, we're trying to bring more supply into the market for people to have an opportunity to invest in them um, because uniquely you don't have to move people out and, and have a lot of friction in those trades. So we're, we're, we're hoping to be part of that supply solution, working with build to rent folks and bringing some of that supply that might be on the sidelines into the market. And then eventually markets are cyclical. So you will see more supply come back in, in, into the space, but you know it's hard to look past where you are, I think oftentimes in a cycle. Yep, very, very true. All right, so what are three apps you can't live without? Three apps I can't live without. Um, well, clearly Uber, um, you know, that's something that I've gotten to be, you know, become really reliant on. Um, uh, Spotify, I, I gotta have my Spotify. Uh, that, that is something that, uh, I'm definitely addicted to, and, and I would say more recently during COVID, I've really gotten into Strava. I don't know if you use Strava, but I, I like to mountain bike, and that is a really cool app, um, very motivating, and uh, so yeah, I you know I use that all the time now. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a Strava user, but uh, like definitely into running and. Uh, you know, Runkeeper was a company that uh, you know supported venture fizz from the early days, so I'm a Runkeeper user, and then uh, when COVID hit, I uh, joined the Peloton train. So, and I'm just been nice. like cricket. Yeah. I'm like ride five, six days a week. It's awesome. So um, I'm, I'm long on their recovery. Like they're just getting hammered right now. And I just don't think it's nice. <laughs> I know. It's not fair. <laughs> like for God's sakes, like cut this company a break. Oh, it's brutal. Like it's, it's just, it's crazy how the media loves to just rip like that you're our shining star and they put you on this pedestal. And then as soon as there's an opportunity, they just rip it to shreds. It's crazy. But anyways, there's my rant for today. Uh, <laughs> so, favorite, so podcast or book recommendation. <laughs> oh, um, well, I'm, I'm uh, reading a book right now. That's pretty interesting. Um, in, in fact, I've got it sitting right here, winning on purpose, which is uh, by Fred Reichfeld. Um, uh, Reich held actually, um, he was the inventor of the net promoter score, which uh, allows you to really test how many promoters versus detractors there are. It's something we use in our business to track. And, and, you know, he believes really the, the only way to have a successful business over the long term is to, is to really kind of delight your customers. And there's just example after example of why, if you can do that, um, you will be successful. So that's, I, I, I'm about halfway through that. It's really good. Um, 
House of Pain is really good. I don't know if you've read that, but that's that's uh, that's about the Sackler family and okay. the whole um, opiate crisis. So uh, that, that yes. reads like reads like fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, that's pretty interesting. And then you know, on the podcast, I love. Um, I, I always listen to Marketplace. I love Kai Rizdal. Um, I, I love the way that he treats that those topics, and um, you know, and I I, um, I love This American Life, which is you know, just really entertaining with Ira Glass. That That is um, not business related, but it's pretty fun. And then I I love uh, Freakonomics Radio, which uh, I just think is super interesting. I studied economics in college and psychology. And so to me, this is kind of this intersection of economics and psychology. And I, I think uh, Stephen Dubner and his team there are really cool. Very, very good recommendations. I'll definitely check some of them out. Well, Gary, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background story, all the great companies you've been a part of, uh, and all what's happening at Roofstock, and obviously all the great advice. Keith, I enjoyed it. Appreciate it. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.